I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. On Commons People This Week, a very British coup. Um, I was speechless when I heard what had happened. And... Are we going back to the office? I want people to, to go back to work as as. as carefully as possible. And Keir Starmer's first 100 days. Well, we're not setting out proposals at the moment for the next manifesto. Hello and welcome to Commons People. I'm Arj Singh and joining me this week is Paul Wall. Hi, Arj. Hi, Paul. Rachel Wearmouth's here. Hiya. Hiya, and we've got Labour's Shadow Foreign Secretary, Lisa Nandy. Hello. Hi, Lisa. Well, it's been a big week in security and foreign affairs after Boris Johnson decided to ban Huawei from installing new equipment to the UK's 5G network from the end of this year and to have all its kits stripped out by 2027. China's sceptic Tory MPs who have helped drive the decision are, however, not fully satisfied and want a faster timetable. Meanwhile, Chris Grayling failed to win a rigged election to become chair of the Intelligence and Security Committee after Julian Lewis struck a deal with opposition MPs to seize the job. It was a major embarrassment for Johnson, who reacted by sacking Lewis from the Tories. Uh, And there's extraordinary breaking news today as Dominic Raab reveals that Russian hackers tried to influence the UK election in December. But for now, let's hear former ISC chair Dominic Grieve on the row over Julian Lewis. I was speechless when I heard what had happened and the removal of the whip. Uh, I was also troubled when I heard that the government was trying to manipulate the outcome of the election of the chair, because the committee is set up by statute, uh, and the statute is absolutely clear that uh, the committee elects its own chair. And the committee has a long track record, even before the day of the time when we had an elected chair, of independence from government. It can't operate without that independence. And it's also a non-partisan committee. Mm. So if you went in and sat in on a meeting, you wouldn't actually be able to tell who belonged to what political party. Uh, And that's its strength. And once you start messing around with it and trying to manipulate who the chair is going to be Mm. in in the manner that the government appears to have done, then you undermine the committee's credibility. Uh, Paul, it's all kicking off in the world of security and intelligence and foreign affairs this week. What's what's going on? And, and some breaking news to bring to us, I think you have. Yeah, well, we've just done the fact that Dominic Raab has announced that uh, for the first time ever, British intelligence has assessed that Russians or Russian actors tried to interfere in a, a UK general election. And um, now it's quite interesting, actually, that um, this has come from the foreign secretary rather than being an explicit piece of published advice by the National Cyber Security Centre or anyone else. But essentially, and that, that's a distinction we might want to talk about, but Dominic Raab is saying on behalf of the government, that the assessment is that um, 
basically these hackers, uh, these Russian actors, rather than the Russian state, Russian actors, um, decided to propagate or amplify the leaked trade document between the UK and the US that Jeremy Corbyn highlighted in the general election. Now, if you remember, Corbyn uh, seized on this. He waved around a redacted document, both in the TV debate and a special press conference uh, with lots of NHS workers lined up. Basically, the, the theme was that this laid bare that the NHS was going to be sold off under a trade deal post-Brexit. Now, that was the theme. Um, now, when we all looked into the document, it wasn't exactly clear that, that there was much evidence for some sort of sell-off to US pharma companies. But it seems that the, the bigger story now is how did that document get propagate, propagated and, and why was it spread online? And, and UK's assessment is that Russian actors... Uh, seized on it. It was actually put on a Reddit thread in October. Um, there's a separate issue about whether how, how it was originally obtained, that document, and there's a criminal investigation, which we can't really talk much about. There's a criminal investigation to how it was originally leaked. But once it was leaked, it was put on, on the internet, and no one really noticed it. And until, during the general election, Jeremy Corbyn then said, wow, here's this document. Um, then at the time, the Tories said, well, actually, it's been hungry around for ages. Why are you seizing on this now? Now, no one is saying directly, look, Jeremy Corbyn was somehow influenced by the Russians. No one's saying that directly. But it's clear what the government is saying today is that Russians did propagate it and amplify it in the election. And that's brand new. Yeah, Lisa, what's your initial reaction to the revelations today? Um, well, I mean, I suppose the first thing is about is just about national security. And I think we've had an approach in Britain for the last decade that hasn't really put national security at the heart of our foreign policy, um, especially in relation to China. But I also think we've been quite slow to take the threat from Russia seriously as well. And it's one of the reasons why I've now been in post for, I think, 102 days <laughs> as the shadow foreign secretary and have used quite a bit of that time to try to push the government to release the Russia report. I actually made it a feature of my election campaign when I stood in the Labour leadership contest that I wanted to reset our relationship with Russia. I, I think we have to take this really, really seriously. I think we've seen a, a level of um, involvement by the Russian government and Russian officials in British politics, including the Scripple attack, using chemical agents on the streets of the UK, that should warrant a much more robust approach. Now, last week, Dominic Raab came to the House of Commons and said um, that he was finally bringing forward the Magnitsky sanctions. These are sanctions that can be applied against officials from other countries who've been involved in repressing human rights or um, other acts like uh, the torture and murder of Sergei Magnitsky. We've been pushing for that as well. We just think there needs to be a much more strategic approach to the way that we handle external threats and safeguard our national security. And I, you know, I'm glad that he's released this statement today, but what I want to see is a much, a much better, more consistent approach across the board to how we're going to deal with uh, countries that are showing relatively high amounts of aggression towards the UK at the moment. Yeah, just while we're on this, I mean, Lisa, what do you make of the timing of Rob's revelations today after this row, extraordinary row yesterday over the ISC chair chairmanship? Well, it's, I mean, it's, it's difficult to know what to make of it, why 
suddenly this this statement has emerged this morning, whether that's connected to the fact that the government got itself into a complete mess over the Intelligence and Security Committee. Um, the Intelligence and Security Committee is arguably the most important committee in Parliament. It oversees the work of the security services. It's extraordinary that it's taken from the 12th of December when the election result came through until July to set that up and that the government has been uh, not just delaying but also trying to push for, for Chris Grayling its own choice to be the chair of the committee and having completely and utterly failed in that attempt yesterday to expel the Tory MP from the Tory party who actually has taken over that committee. I mean, I think it does show a government that is absolutely desperate to control proceedings. Now, why? I can't tell you because I haven't seen what's in the Russia report. But um, what what I think is happening today is that the government is trying to show that it's being very robust in relation to Russia uh, and yet still we haven't seen that report. So the sooner that Julian Lewis and the committee publish that, I think the better. Yeah, they've said to today that it'll be published before recess, so in the next week. Uh, Rachel, uh, Lisa touched on it there. What did you make of Johnson's decision to immediately sack Lewis from the Tories? Uh, um- I think we've we've seen quite a lot already that Johnson's like really really keen, as, as Lisa's just said, to to try and control everything and pull control in as much as possible. But I think looking at it from a sort of discipline and party political point of view, um, he's obviously very worried about any kind of rebellion going forward. And when you think about that, when you think about the trade deals that he'll have to get through, how that'll affect different constituencies constituencies in different ways, he has to. Um, hold together a party that represents, you know, Beaconsfield and Bishop Auckland, you know, lots of different areas. Um, and I also just think they just look worried. It just, it, it's, if it looks, it looks like it's supposed to be this signal of strength, but it looks to me just like that, uh, just a, a government that, that's extremely worried about being made vulnerable in any way. It's interesting that Rob said um, in his statement that he only put out his statement today uh, after consulting the newly formed ISC. And number 10 have just told us that it's quite nonsense that somehow this is a a distraction technique uh, ahead of the Russia report, which a lot of people who've seen it suggest that actually it does point to uh, Russian donors and the Tory party. Do you think, Lisa, that actually this is an attempted uh, distraction by the government? I mean, I just I think the bigger problem for the country is not whether the government is trying to use distraction techniques. It's that the government doesn't have a strategy to safeguard our national interest at home or abroad. Um, you know, one of the t- I was just listening to Rachel talking about how they, they need to hold together their electoral coalition. One of the problems that they've got, of course, is that they made huge promises to large parts of the country only a few months ago about the levelling up agenda and about flipping an economic settlement that for 40 years has denied investment to a lot of parts of the country that they now seek to represent. Then, of course, you had COVID and the the prospect of a very long and deep economic recession um, across the world, including here in Britain. So you've got this real tension going on at the moment between the Treasury, which is chasing investment, and the Department for Trade, which is going after trade deals wherever they can, because having not done that work before, they've left us fairly unprepared. And then on the other hand, you've got the Foreign Office, which, which I think largely has been trying to move us into a much tougher position in relation to the threats that are posed by 
the ch actions of the Chinese government in Hong Kong, by the um, attempts by the Russian officials to hack into British systems and interfere with British democracy. And those two things, they're going to have to be resolved somehow. And so far, what we're seeing is one part of government doing one thing, another part of government completely undermining it. So last week you had Dominic Raab in the House Commons Chamber saying we're bringing in the Magnitsky sanctions and amongst the first of, of whom these will be applied are um, Saudi officials involved in the murder of the journalist Jamal Khashoggi. 24 hours later, Liz Truss at the Department of Trade, International Trade, announces that we're resuming arms sales to Saudi Arabia. This is just wholly inconsistent. It has no moral thread to it at all it diminishes our standing in the eyes of the world and it it gives us serious problems in terms of safeguarding our national interest and national security that for me is the bigger issue than whether the tories are trying to distract from a mess that they've made over the last 48 hours trying to put someone in as chair of the intelligence and security committee who was deemed wholly unsuitable by the rest of parliament that's that's the big problem that Britain faces. And unless they start to resolve that, the entire country will suffer. Um, and it's becoming a little bit more difficult than that as well, because as well as there being real implications for Britain, if you add that to the fact that on a global level, um, there is no, no obvious global leadership emerging during what is a global crisis, the fact that Britain is in a complete mess, the British government in a complete mess about how it approaches the rest of the world and what sort of role it wants to play is a tragedy for the whole world. And we've got to, we've got to resolve this. Yeah, Lisa, just, just on China, um, Labour's taking a bit more of a hardline approach than it was before under Keir Starmer. Uh, but now that we're stripping Huawei out of our 5G, should we be looking at other areas? Um, we know that China's involved in Hinkley Point, the nuclear power station, uh, there are suggestions it could help build HS2. Should we be looking at other areas of Chinese involvement and, and be looking to kind of strip that out of out of the UK? Yeah, I mean, it's the same. It's the same problem is that there's no real consistency of approach across government. So they've been very slow around Huawei. There's been a huge internal debate within the Conservative Party about what to do about it. Um, we've said consistently, in fact, Chion Wara, who's the shadow minister on the Labour benches for this, and helpfully a former telecoms engineer, so really knows the stuff on this, has been saying actually for over a year that we shouldn't be reliant on high-risk vendors in our critical national infrastructure. Uh, you know, our own security services have been saying for over a year that Huawei is a high-risk vendor. And so we've been asking for a plan to reduce the reliance on Huawei um, in 5G. Um, I have to say to you that Oliver Dowden came to the Commons yesterday to announce that they were now going to do something about this, but what they're going to do about it isn't entirely clear. He set a date of 2027, um, but he has no strategy for how he's going to get from where we are now to where we need to be in 2027. And it does seem to me extraordinary that given everything that's happened in relation to the Chinese government over the last few weeks, parliamentary time has been dominated by the way in which they're undermining the joint declaration in Hong Kong, by the actions of the Chinese government against the Uyghur people and you've had some very tough talk from the foreign office and yet the, the department for culture media and sport still has no actual strategy for how they're going to um, remove 
Huawei from the 5G network. And on top of that, you've got um, an application at Sizewell C going through, which you referred to in terms of nuclear power. Um, I was raising concerns about this in 2016 when I was the Shadow Energy Secretary and Hinkley Point was going through um, about whether it was wise to offer the Chinese government, uh, Chinese back co- government-backed companies, a major stake in our national infrastructure. The big question around nuclear power is about technology. It's not about trying to stop Chinese companies investing in the UK. We've had a long-standing relationship with the Chinese people, with Chinese business, um, with Chinese universities, and those exchanges and those relationships are incredibly important for us as a country. But handing over technology in nuclear power to Chinese companies who have a majority stake. It just seems to me this approach is entirely inconsistent with the the things that were set out in the chamber yesterday. Well, Boris Johnson is getting ready to tell the nation it is time to stop working from home and get back to the office. Reports suggest the Prime Minister could move as early as Friday to drop the government's advice to work from home if you can. Meanwhile, the Leicester local lockdown looks set to be extended, despite the council's complaints that virus flare-ups have only occurred in certain areas of the city, which has in turn sparked a row over testing data. And face masks have finally been made compulsory in shops but not takeaways after Michael Gove was seen leaving a prep without one. Uh, Let's hear a bit of the PM on going back to work. Everybody can see what's happening in other countries around the world where people misinterpret the messages, people don't observe the guidance, and boom, uh, you get spikes again. We can't have that in this country. Uh, We mustn't have that. So I want people to to go back to work as, as, as carefully as possible. I think we need, it's very important that people should be, um, you know, going back to work if they can now. Uh, Paul, what's the PM, is the PM about to tell us all to go back to work and is that going to work? Well, to be frank, um, I think the, the biggest factor here is not what, what the Prime Minister wants, it's what companies want. Um, and actually, it's what companies want more than what workers want, which is something maybe Lisa might want to talk about, because the driving factor is that actually it saves companies a huge amount of money for people to be working at home. And they're saving on rents uh, if they've renegotiated their rents. And ultimately, in the long term, you can imagine them saying to people, actually, we'd rather you worked at home. Um, um, and some people might like that. Now, some workers will really not like it because they enjoy the social benefit of, of um, going in to meet other people on a daily basis. Um, it is certainly bad news, very, very bad news for all those retailers and shops and cafes and city centres, whether in Manchester or London or Birmingham or anywhere. Um, so, and they're all going to get absolutely crippled, I suspect, by the big corporate shift out of city centres. And I suspect that's what's going to happen. And no matter what Boris Johnson says, I don't think he's going to be able to shift that bottom line. And then you get into a really interesting question about not necessarily just the virus, but what are the rights of the workers in that situation? Um, Should they be forced to work home? Should the government be doing anything um, interventionist on that front, which would actually help Boris Johnson's two big aims? One is getting the economies and city centres going again, but also trying to do it safely. So I think there's a 
a bigger factors driving this than than just Boris Johnson getting up and trying to order people what to do. Yeah, Lisa, what, what do you make of this? Uh, going back to what do you think people are, are confident enough to go back? And, and what happens if Boris Johnson tells them all to go back and people don't feel comfortable? So I think confidence is the absolute key to all of this, actually. <clears throat> so I, I, you know, I feel very strongly, I think the whole Labour Party feels very strongly that the economy needs to get to be reopened, but it has to happen safely. And, you know, I went, I was down in the centre of town a couple of days ago in Wigan and the impact on our high streets is immense. And I'm really worried about what's going to happen um, in relation to that. So getting people out again into shops and buying things and cafes and restaurants, it seems like it's incredibly important, but I'm just not sure that people are confident to do it. I mean, a lot of them were open when I was in town the other day, but but there weren't a lot of people there. And it's not surprising. We spent months saying to people, stay home, save lives, you know, and don't put don't put the NHS under strain. And people are just genuinely trying to do the right thing. So I think clarity over face masks is quite welcome. They've made an announcement now that they want people to wear face masks in shops. I genuinely don't know if that makes people more confident or less confident, but I think having clarity probably helps. And it probably helps a lot for the shop workers as well, because don't forget there's a lot of people who are already back at work. Now, my worry with Boris Johnson and what he's trailing about Friday, about saying to everyone, get back into the office immediately, is for those people who are currently at work, whether it's on public transport, or, you know, in the, in the canteen at work, um, keeping a service going, they're going to be very, very impacted by a lot of people suddenly appearing that weren't there before. And the question is, can that be done safely? And I'm not entirely confident, given that yesterday he stood in PMQs and said that he hadn't even read his own report into what needs to be done in advance of a second wave, whether any of that thinking will have been done before an announcement is made about that. So I just think there's a lot of things that need to be put together as a proper strategy before you start saying to people you need to get back into the office. Because the truth is that if people don't understand the rules or if they don't feel confident about them, whatever you're trying to do is not going to happen. I, I got the train back from London yesterday and it was obviously quite empty. A lot of the trains are still quite empty, but um, a lot of people weren't wearing face masks on the train. So they all had them but the vast majority weren't actually wearing them to travel. Now, I don't think that's because people are bad people. I think people are genuinely confused about what the rules are. And so, you know, consistency matters, clarity matters, and and being quick to respond matters. And at the moment, we've had none of that from the government. Yeah, uh, Rachel, we saw a bit of maybe why Boris Johnson is being motivated to do this this week. Um, MPs on, on his backbenches are still slightly unhappy and and do you, do you think valence and witty the the chief science people at the top of government are on board with this well, we'll find out a little bit more from um from at least patrick valence today at the science and Te- technology committee but the um report commissioned this that, that came back this week said the second wave could inc- involve 120,000 deaths this winter um if no actions taken um and they're very much worried about getting everything in place for a second wave now <laughs> and i just yeah, it just we're hearing less about that than we are about whether or not his Conservative MPs agree with him. Yeah, fair <laughs> <enough>. <laughs> uh, Lisa, I just wanted to ask you about something that there's a bit of a row bubbling away, uh, which I've been writing about this week on testing data and what should be made public. I know councils uh, and Andy Byrne and the Greater Manchester Mayor has, has called for more 
data to flow to councils. But the government and, and Matt Hancock, who's a big open data fanatic, wants to actually make postcode level data public. Uh, but councils have pushed back against it because they're worried that it could lead to certain communities being stigmatised. Um, now, Soulsby and Leicester, Peter Soulsby, the council leaders, has released a map which basically showed the virus mainly affecting predominantly Asian areas. So do we need to actually have a conversation here and be transparent and publish this data? Or is it right to kind of be worried about community cohesion and, and maybe think twice about publishing detailed data about where coronavirus is? So I think the absolute key thing here is about making sure that the data is made available to the people who need it. The people who most need it are public health directors across the country who will have to respond very, very quickly if there's a an, an, a local outbreak. You know, we're watching this very closely in Wigan because we have a lot of food production companies here. And across the world, it's been in areas of food production where they've seen the biggest sort of second spike outbreaks. So there's it's public health directors. It's also local GPs as well. It is absolutely wild that local... GPs and public health directors currently don't know who is who has got coronavirus in their areas. I went to see my GP the other day about something completely unrelated and I got I, I was treated to a 20 minute rant about why it is that the government has brought in a lot of private companies, Serco, Deloitte, Boots and others to do to set up testing facilities who don't have expertise in it who don't have local knowledge and that those test results then aren't shared locally that is a real real problem if you look at what's happening in Leicester Leicester won't be the last place where we see a new outbreak so they've got to have access to that information they've got to be able to track it and they've got to be able to respond very very quickly and Greater Manchester is a really good example of that where we've actually set up our own system because the government was too slow to set up theirs we procured our own PPE. Um, the government was saying there wasn't any available. It took five minutes on Google to find out that wasn't true and to get PPE to the front line. Um, but we also set up our own test, trace and isolate system. And the reason that isolate matters is because, um, and this goes to your question about do you want to make that information available to the public, what you absolutely cannot do is stigmatise people who test positive for COVID. They have to feel that they can be as forthcoming as possible with people who are trying to trace so and that they're not going to stigmatize other people friends and family that they may have been in contact with so that they share that information and so that then people are able to follow those guidelines without feeling like it's going to have negative impacts on them in south korea the south koreans who dealt with this very early on that is the absolute number one lesson that they said came out of the way that they, they the thing that they had to deal with was that you have to not stigmatize people. So then when they go in and do local lockdowns, they, they put out press releases saying these people are heroes, they're, they're sacrificing for the national interest. And my concern is that what we're seeing in Britain is a very different approach where the government isn't doing any of that work and then what you could end up with is a situation where people from Leicester or even you know people from particular streets are being stigmatized for the fact that they've got covid and being punished for it and we've got to be really <clears throat> really careful about that 
that isn't my message. That's the message that I got from my public health director who I spoke to last week who said that they're not very keen on street-by-street street lockdowns, actually, because they just don't think that people will stick to it and they think it will be stigmatising. And so they want to take a much more strategic approach where they're actually working with individuals and families. One of the things they're doing in Greater Manchester, by the way, is when they ring people up to say you've got a positive test around COVID, they then say, do you need us to talk to your employer um, because you're going to need time off work? Do you need help with your shopping? Is there anything we can do? Do you need help with childcare? Which is so different to the government's approach. It's a supportive approach, not a punishing approach. And Lisa, can I just ask you a bit on Wigan? Obviously, Wigan has now got the lowest number of cases in Greater Manchester. Um, and yet, um, it, there's areas really close by that have got pretty high uh, levels of COVID infection. Do you think that is down, as some people suggest, is, is down to the, the racial mix? I mean, Wigan's very unusual. It's got a 95% white population, as you know. I mean, I, I, God knows how that happened historically. I mean, it's not like Oldham. It's not like Rochdale. You know, it, it, for some reason, historically, it's had a tiny, tiny BAME population. And it's got a very low number of corona cases. Um, do you think politicians need to talk a bit more about that? In other words, to say, look, this proves that it's not just about deprivation. There's a race element here to predisposition to this disease. Um, maybe um, the way people, uh, different generations are living in, 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 um, in communities and actually to help those communities by talking about it. So I, I think I think there there is definitely a conversation that we need to have that we've been trying to have in the Labour Party, we've, we've asked Doreen Lawrence to, to lead a piece of work looking at the the, the different impacts for BAME communities of COVID. I, I mean, from, from a local perspective, and obviously this isn't very scientific, so I'll wait to hear what Doreen has to say about it because she's been much more rigorous about, about that. But there's definitely an issue about... Uh, it feels like there's an issue about predisposition to, to COVID, the, the scientific evidence that we do have out there shows that BAME groups are, you know, certainly much more impacted once they get it, if not more likely to get it. So that's that's a problem. It's also that I think there's an economic element to go alongside the, the racial aspects of this as well. If you're less li- if you're more likely to be, you know, working on the front line in, you know, uh, trains, the buses, uh, in a care home, that it's it's often that sort of front line and fairly low paid work that people in BAME communities end up doing because, well, frankly, because we've got structural discrimination in this country. And so there are huge issues around that, I think, that just need to be properly explored. And it does it does say something about, you know, the, the focus of the government that actually during this crisis, who has been most ignored? We've been very slow to, to pay attention to the differential impact on BAME communities, very slow to pay attention to the differential impact on women, and very slow as well to pay attention to the differential impact on children. I know that children seem not to exhibit the same sort of symptoms of COVID, but actually I worry a huge amount here about the mental health impact on children at critical stages of their development, and it just hasn't formed enough of the the national conversation so far. It's more than 100 days now since Keir Starmer seized the Labour leadership, beating off challenges from Rebecca Long-Bailey and, of course, you, Lisa. Uh, Starmer's made an immediate impact. Starmer's made an immediate impact, narrowing the gap to the Tories in the polls and sacking Long-Bailey after she was accused of sharing an anti-Semitic conspiracy theory. Uh, And there's a big moment looming for Starmer, who this week received the Equality and Human Rights Commission's report on anti-Semitism in the party. 
but his approach to the economy remains something of a mystery amid questions over whether he's still committed to increasing income tax for the top 5% of earners. Rachel Reeves was asked about it this week by Andrew Mart. Let's listen. Asking people earning over £80,000 a year to pay more tax was a Labour policy. Have you really moved away from those kind of policies? Labour is no longer the party of fair taxes, of taxing people with the broader shoulders most. Is that really the position? Well, we're not setting out proposals at the moment for the next manifesto. The next general election is likely to be four uh, years away. We had a terrible defeat in the election uh, last year. Right. We need to reassess yeah. a whole range of policies. But uh, Rachel, you've been writing about 100 days of Keir Starmer's leadership. How has it yes. gone? Um, considering the extremely low base that the uh, sorry the Labour Party came from, I think um, most people seem to think that Keir Starmer has done as well as could possibly be expected. You know, according to some polls, he's he's doing better than Boris Johnson as like who would make a better prime minister. Um, uh, but again, he seems to be staying away from policy as much as possible and working on um, Labour being seen as a, a credible party. You know, it's all about competence, competence, competence. Um, and I think he's, he's he's managed to avoid some of the, the traps that were there for Labour, like talking about extending the transition period, for example. He stayed away from that, which I think would have been disastrous um, for Labour. And I think that he's tried very... He has avoided being characterised, I think, in his first 100 days, like a lot of leaders... A lot of leaders are. You know, I think it's 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 not a bad thing for 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 people to say. What do you think of Keir Starmer? And almost everyone would say, "Oh, well, he's forensic." You know, forensic is the word that you hear about Keir Starmer again and again and again. Um, but I think that uh, on the on the flip side of that, some people are concerned that he, he could be seen as a little bit boring. And I think it's we're in a uh, uh, because of coronavirus, we're in this kind of period where. Um, it's kind of like a little bit of a phony war at PMQs. It's not there's not the the chamber's not fully there. It's not as 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 loud and as sort of raucous as it might be at other times. Um, and I think sort of Keir Starmer's probably going to have to think on his feet a little bit more. I think it it will be very easy for Labour at this point to to underestimate um, how sort of lethal an opponent Boris Johnson could be. Uh, I think just a, a couple of phrases that have come out of PMQs and in recent weeks has, has been, you know, the whole more briefs than Calvin Klein and and Captain Hindsight, you know, as, as sort of ways to to for Boris Johnson to dig into the whole the you know remain a lawyer seen as forensic kind of argument. And I think though you could see those phrases making their way into journalist copy for the next five years. So yeah, yeah. What, what, work to do. what was really interesting in your piece as well was this suggestion that from one uh, Labour source, I think it was, that, that Starmer needs to apologise to leave voters for his anti-Brexit. Well, that was from that was from a that was from a Labour MP actually with a leave yeah. a, a leave constituency, and 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 they described it as uh, apologising for the hurt cause hurt cause to leave to leave voters by um, certain people in the party. I think she phrased it as, but she meant. Keir Starmer. Yeah, Lisa, what do you make of that? Because obviously uh, you're, you're now in the inner circle, obviously, Lisa, so you've got to be careful. But do you think voters in Wigan remember what Keir did on Brexit? And could it be I a was, problem? I was just rattling through, while Rachel was talking, I was just rattling through my mind thinking, OK, it's someone in a Leaf constituency, it's a woman. Who could it <laughs> be? <it's> a woman. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Rachel, careful. <laughs> 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 it was me. Six people, like, 
I don't. I honestly don't think they'll mind. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I feel like a lot of the heat has gone out of Brexit um, on leave and remain sides. Actually, not that people feel any less strongly about it, but I feel it's difficult to say because we're in lockdown. I'll be honest with you. I see less people than I saw before. But obviously, I talk to a lot of constituents, and I, I think I think people feel Leave voters particularly feel now that. Brexit is going to happen so that has taken some of the sort of sting out of it but I do I do think that Keir recognises and I certainly recognise too representing the sort of constituency that I do that the there's a big job of work for the Labour Party to do to rebuild trust with people they need to feel something again that they haven't felt for well over a decade probably longer which is that we're just not on their side and they need to feel that we are again and I think actually, you know, you quoted Rachel Reeves and the, the, you know, not not making commitments around income tax, for example, in the first hundred days. For me, that is actually about showing a bit of respect to people. One of the things that came up over and over again in December in the election was that working class people don't have a lot of money, and if you're going to spend it on their behalf, then you need to be very careful about how you do that and so not making big policy pronouncements about spending commitments it seems to me that's that is a respectful way to approach the electorate and alongside that Keir set up something that they call called Kia which is could probably tell you tell you probably tells you what it is but you know it's essentially him trying to get out even with covid through via zoom to um areas of the country where people feel that, that we haven't been listening to them for a long time and it is largely about them talking to him about their priorities in their lives the first one was in berry i'm from berry so um i was pretty keen on that my mum was on the call keeping tabs on him just checking um and you know the the mum verdict was that yes he he's he's got it he's he's understood that labor has got to be a party that listens and doesn't just pronounce from you know, from from cities hundreds of miles away from where people live. So I think, I, I, you know, I sort of share the view that this has been a good start, but we're under no illusions as a team about how much work we've got to do. And of course, you know, as Rachel says, never underestimate your opponents in politics either. You know, my my assessment of the Tory party is that they're very, very ruthless about hanging on to power. If If they thought Boris Johnson was a liability, Boris Johnson would be gone and somebody else would be the leader. Um, and you know we've got to be really mindful that that's what we're up against. I've I've always felt it's hard harder in some ways for Labour because we, you know, as Harold Wilson said, we're a moral crusade or nothing at all. And you know it's very easy to to sort of retreat to 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 a sort of safe space where you without reference to the public. It's very hard actually to to go out and make the case and win the argument. That's what I felt we should have done during Brexit. And I do, I do feel quite confident, actually, that the approach that we're taking as a party is about that. It's about listening, learning, having humility and going out and winning the argument, which is exactly what I said in the Labour leadership contest. And it turns out that I didn't have to win for that to happen. So that is really good news. <laughs> and Lisa, do you think that actually one thing no Labour politician should be saying is that um, the Brexit transition period should be extended? that that would be an insult to your voters and lots of Leave voters? I just think it's wholly unrealistic. And, you know, Keir is, you're right, he's keen to be a constructive opposition. 
what would be the most constructive thing in the national interest at the moment? Would it be for Labour to jump up and down and say, we want a longer transition period, which is not going to happen? The Tories have an 80-seat majority and they've been absolutely clear about that. Or would it be to say, look, you've made commitments about this. You said you had an oven-ready deal to, ready to go. Well, turn the oven on then and let's get that deal and let's get a deal that's in the best interests of this country. And that's what Rachel Reeves has been doing. And I really support her in that. Uh, you know, I'm somebody who felt so strongly about the need to get a deal, having fought for one for four years, that I went and voted for Boris Johnson's deal at second reading. It was not perfect. In fact, it was pretty, um, pretty bad. But it gave us a sh prospect after four years of deadlock of actually moving the country forwards. Um, and... Um, so I think, you know, I think this that that is Labour's job now is to make sure that we hold the Tories to account for the very big promises that they made to people in towns like mine in December and that we get that deal through. Yeah, Lisa, I just just wanted to ask you, you raised an interesting point there, which is getting increasingly discussed in Westminster, which is this idea of Boris Johnson possibly not being Tory leader uh, in time for the next election. Would you be more scared of a Tories led by Boris Johnson or by Rishi Sunak? Um, I mean, I, I know Rishi Sunak a bit and, um, you know, I've done various things with him, media things and stuff, debates over the years. And he's always struck me as perfectly competent, but I don't know a huge amount about him apart from that. And I suspect that somebody who's trying to become the leader of the Conservative parties and the next party and the next prime minister is probably quite wise not to sort of show much more of themselves than that. But I do find the way that the media sort of obsess about him a little strange because, you know, all we know about Rishi Sunak really so far is that he, he took over from Sajid Javid and um, with a programme that was looks to me like it was largely written by Number 10 about about levelling up. He delivered that that very competently at the dispatch box. Then COVID happened and we haven't seen much of it since. I, I, you know, I support very much supported what he did when he brought in the TUC and the CBI to build a package of financial support. But there are real problems with what he's announced in the last few weeks about uh, furlough ending without flexibility for different sectors. I feel it here very much because we've got a lot of people who work in tourism. I've got a coach company that, um, well, a tourism travel company that went uh, effectively bust a few weeks ago. Um, because the the help is just not coming, so um, I'm I'm not sure where Rishi Sunak's going to be once you know if, if he doesn't change course now and start really taking seriously the fact that lots of people stand to lose their jobs and they will be very concentrated in parts of the country that the Tories made big promises to back in December. I'm not sure that he'd be in a position to to stand if there was a a vacancy in a few few months time so perhaps Rishi if you're listening we need sector specific help around things like tourism and aviation and you need to pay attention to the geographical um, impact of all of this too please <laughs> <laughs> right on that note uh, it's time for the quiz yay <laughs> this week is in honor of Julian Lewis and political coups uh, so just shout out the answer if you know it uh, in the 1970s, Julian Lewis posed as a Labour moderate and briefly won control of a constituency Labour party in an effort to highlight militant entryism. But which constituency was it in? 
Newham North East. Well done, oh, Paul. Sorry, we can't, I can't be doing a quiz with Paul War on it. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we really? have some proper questions, like Brittany. You'll <laughs> <laughs> never know those. <laughs> <laughs> you, you would be, you'd be surprised, Lisa. Paul's like the number one fan for Love Island. <laughs> oh, yeah, big time. <laughs> I can categorically say we'll never be doing a Love Island quiz as long as I'm hosting <laughs> this podcast because I've never seen it. Sorry. Um, what happened between Bernard Wetherill and Walter Harrison that is credited with bringing down James Callaghan's Labour government in 1979? Could we have something in my lifetime at some point? <laughs> okay, I'll give you a clue. This was made famous in the play This House. I've just watched that. Hang on. It's good. It was good. I watched that on um, on YouTube. On as YouTube, well. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very it's good. May have been I the bit where I was playing with my phone, reading <laughs> Paul's morning blog or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, it's an evening blog now. That's a giveaway. So he he was the he was the speaker at the time, wasn't he, Bernard Wetherill? No. Was he not? I'll give you. I'll give you. I'll give you another clue. I'll give you another clue. Lisa, you should get it after this clue. They I'm were. Not being they funny, were... But does oh. anyone actually care about the answer to this? Like anyone listening. <laughs> You'd be amazed, Lisa. You'd be amazed. Some people only come for the quiz, honestly. Yeah, was was Bernard in the Tory Whips office and they did a deal or something? Yeah. And they agreed to what? Nod people through or something? No, 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 no. no, no. Go on, give us a clue then. Yeah, they were they, so Bernard Weatherall was a Tory whip and Walter Harrison was the uh, Yorkshire Labour deputy chief whip. Yeah, and that there was a row of a pairing, but these two. All right, I'll give you the answer. Go there on. was a row of a pairing. Uh, it had been suspended over various rows over the previous few years. Um, Walter Harrison, the Labour whip, was begging with Wetherill for a, for a pair, and he offered to pair himself the Tory whip. And Harrison thought this was so honourable that he told him not to bother. And so he voted and Callaghan lost by one vote. Yeah, amazing. It's the end of the play, Lisa. She's falling asleep by then. <laughs> Good get out. Okay, this one's probably a bit easier. Um, during the Brexit prorogation row last year, Johnson sacked 21 Tory MPs from the party who, who rebelled and then lost his majority. But he also lost a 22nd MP on the same day. Who was it and how? Was it Bowles? Someone resigned, didn't they? Yeah, but it wasn't Bowles. Was it Philip Lee? Yeah, well done, Rachel. There were so many Lee, of them yeah. around that time. It was really hard to keep track. <laughs> Philip, Philip Lee, God, he's, he's a blast from the past, isn't he? Yeah. It's amazing, yeah. all these people, they were one-hit wonders. And it's like... Oh my God, that's so harsh. It's like... Politics is so brutal. That was December. It's amazing, <laughs> isn't it? December. Yeah. He's plotting a comeback, I think, but um, we'll see. What, for the Lib Dems? I, well, <laughs> uh, it's a draw. It's a draw. Paul and Rachel, you've drawn the quiz this week. Lisa. Uh, I am Jeff. Sorry. Brittany questions next time for Lisa, definitely. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, that's all we have time for this week. Thank you to my guests for joining me and make sure you subscribe to Commons People on all the usual channels so that you can catch us every Thursday. And be sure to get your daily dose of the latest politics news by signing up to the Warzone newsletter at bit.ly forward slash the hyphen war hyphen zone or follow the link in the episode notes. 
Uh, this will be our last episode of the summer with MPs set to go on recess until September, but we may be back with a special episode or two in August. Until then, perhaps you can take some summer inspiration from Tory peer Lord Naseby's activities during lockdown. And of course, uh, noble lords, maybe like me, have got a glass house. And um, certainly from my point of view, it's had far more attention this year than it normally gets. And the tomatoes look great. Uh, the lettuces look great. The leeks are ready for planting out. The cucumbers are falling off the top of the, uh, the wires, etc. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.